You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Welcome to season one of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst making school lunches, cheeky podcast co-hosts, and the shifting state of our world. This is the eighth of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we will be discussing chapter 14, The Resurrection Journey, which Richard describes as a pivotal chapter in understanding the collective good news of the universal Christ. One more thing before we get started. Bree and I are having a blast being in conversation with Richard, and we would love to hear what questions are arising for you as you listen to this podcast or read the book. So if you have a burning question related to the themes of the universal Christ that just won't leave you alone, head over to cac.org podcast and follow the instructions there to submit your question. After this season is over, we'll sift through the submissions pour a glass of something tasty, ask Richard your questions, and then share his responses with all of you. So Richard, today we're talking about chapter 14, the resurrection journey. And I want to begin with a story that I was told in the church that I was growing up, where that Jesus rose from the dead, and the purpose of this is to prove his divinity. Yeah. And then also giving hope for those of us who accept Jesus into our heart as our Lord and Savior, that his death will not be the end of the show for us, too. So, resurrection is possible for us if we believe in Jesus, is the tradition I came from. That was where I started, and I think it's a pretty common place for evangelicals to begin. But you can tell us about the limitations of that perspective, and the invitation to a larger view of resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I probably overuse this term, transactional instead of transformational. But this would be another clear example of that. There's a metaphysical transaction that took place in Jesus' life or Mary's life or uh, uh, the saints. Uh, But you've also heard me say too much that human beings are so self-centered that they don't get interested in anything unless they're part of the deal. So it became this objectification of Jesus as the exclusive uh, symbol of what God wanted to do. And we were supposed to believe it. And we all made the leap of faith and said, yes, we believe it. But there was a reason, at least in my analysis of looking at most Western Christian denominations, 
we didn't really get excited about it um, because it didn't include us. <laughs> it was all about Jesus and a transaction between him and his father again that we were supposed to trust really happened. And as you said, prove that he was God. So it, it left the whole meta-narrative up in the sky, you know, if I can put it that way distant, metaphysical, mere belief, nothing that was participatory, nothing that was grace, really, that included us. So uh, you just had the somewhat typical narrative that we Catholics handed on, mm. but this is why I so often say you didn't really reform us. Now, you know the reason I emphasize that so much is because I think... Uh, individualism did more than anything else to undercut the whole gospel message. And so, again, we were supposed to believe individually that this happened, and that was supposed to make us saved. <laughs> There's nothing transformational about that for your own soul. There's no grace in it for you. And until things tug at our heart, at our soul, at our experience, we don't tend to get excited about them. People say, uh, I'm sorry to say I've never been to an Orthodox Easter celebration, but you have to go to an Orthodox church on Easter to see genuine excitement in the church as they shout, you know, Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed and light their candles and hold, hold them up. Uh, because, as you know, I say in the book, of course, the Eastern Church seems to have gotten the collective notion of resurrection. Now, I'm not saying all Orthodox people got it, but in general, it was taught there more than in the Western Church. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was a lone miracle, an anomaly, we, no one ever has risen from the dead, but our Jesus did. And it left us sort of helpless because, well, we couldn't prove it, you know. Uh, and other people said, well, I don't believe it. And so we got into fights with them for not believing it. Why would, why would that make you a more transformed, loving person if you believed with your head that Jesus rose from the dead. Mm. Well, the effect it often had was make you more smug, righteous, exclusionary from those who didn't believe what you believed. Mm -hmm. Why would you look at me when you said smug? <laughs> what, say it again. <laughs> Why did you look at me when you said smug? Yes, you are so smug, <laughs> Paul. <laughs> but I can... I, I was lucky enough to be at a Eastern Orthodox Holy Week. Oh, were you? Oh, and that tell was me, was it true? It was amazing. I, I was able to bring some students with when I was working at a oh, Bible college. And I'm glad you can bring that up as an example. Just the full body experience of, I felt like it was my first Easter in a lot of ways. Really? Yeah. See, you're not the first one who's told me that. Isn't that neat? Where there was genuine participatory excitement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See, we sing it in our songs. Death is destroyed, but no one believes it. Mm. Do you understand? Do you think that has something to do with how 
profoundly we've um, adhered to this idea of being separate from each other. In other words, I'm just I'm struck by how we philosophically have just gotten into this yeah. worldview. I mean, and, and in many ways, maybe a necessary correction, right? Because we needed to feel our agency as human beings. Yeah, that's good but, enough. But we yeah. kind of collapsed into it to the point where uh-huh. we no longer see ourselves as an interdependent, interconnected yeah. whole. And so then salvation becomes individual. We lost the that collective participatory we were content to preach the gospel to people who had not wa- yet woke up. <laughs> if waking up is overcoming your separateness, that wasn't deemed essential, it seems. And, mm. and so to very separate, autonomous selves, we preached the gospel. And it uh, didn't have much historical effect, cultural effect, neighborhood effect even church effect. So you're right. And of course, I make a lot in the book of that 1 Corinthians 15, 13, which no one quotes. If there is no resurrection from death, Christ himself cannot have been raised. Why does no preacher quotes that? We just quote the next line. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. We love to preach with a threat, you know. (laughs) But but that the previous line says, Christ was an example of the universal principle of resurrection from death. Mm. It's it's right there. 1 Corinthians 15, 13. But we didn't hear it. We did. Of course, we uh, to be kind to our ancestors, we didn't have the science we have now, the biology we have now, which is right. aiding us to see. Oh my gosh, nothing really dies mm-hmm. in the universe, and nothing separate, and from nothing each other. separate. Yeah. Both of those yeah. exactly. So that'll help us, I think, be more sympathetic mm-hmm. to those who went ahead of us. Now the science that we've been given in quantum physics and and molecular biology is saying, oh, this is the shape of the whole universe. Mm. It's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the way that you help us redefine resurrection as another word for change. Oh, thank you. And yes. In the book you talk about yeah. how it's, uh, well, this is a quote from you, uh, <laughs> resurrection is another word for change, but particularly positive change, yes. which we tend to see only in the long run. In the short run, it often just looks like death. And from there, you go on to say even the intuition of the Catholic rites of um, life is not ended, it is merely changed. And this speaks to some of the intuitions of of a religious or spiritual lens that science is in partnership with now, right? But there's something about uh, the human experience where we have a really difficult time with change from whether it's... uh, uh, a TV show getting canceled, people get upset, or the rearrangement of pews in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, how <laughs> how do we learn to trust resurrection as change at the cellular level? And kind of a, another question to take onto that for me is, do we have to at first not trust it, to learn to trust that this change is indeed positive? Boy, that's a real foundational question. Why do human beings... So fear, dislike, and oppose change. Uh, We prefer homeostasis. Uh, Mm. 
business as usual. Now, the psychologists say that it's the nature of the ego, the self-sufficient self, likes its self-sufficiency. <laughs> and uh, when you rearrange things, you have to rearrange your self-sufficiency. You have to recognize, well, it's not really all about me. So I think it comes back to that. Uh, the ego hates change. The self-sufficient self likes being self-sufficient. Now, when you rearrange the room, which means I have to adjust to other people and include them in my self-definition. That's why you who have children are so lucky. I mean that sincerely. Because you have to learn this every day to raise a child uh, and to be married or to sustain a marriage. Um, so that's good stuff. And yet we both have to admit we, we know a lot of parents and a lot of married people who are still grandly self-sufficient. You mm -hmm. you're, you're amazing that the, the marriage can last. I guess they found some detente <laughs> whereby they can maintain their independence and still say, I love you. Not really maybe recognizing the meaning of that phrase. So um, a psychology explains it as, as good as anything. The human fear of change. That it's the, the human fear of vulnerability, loss of boundaries, loss of control. The ego wants control, period. <laughs> so if you don't practice already on the playground, you know, really, a little kid is practicing on... If you can't play with other kids, uh, you're, you've probably got very strong control needs. It's the why sports is important for so many boys. Maybe playing house. Or, I, forgive me for giving stereotypical roles. But um, yeah, it starts with playing. And a truly uh, narcissistic child doesn't even know how to play. Because mm. it's giving away to the other mm. ever so often. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm. What's well, interesting to me about what you're saying is that it seems as though we need to have a certain basis of security in order to have imagination which i would say that's a positive way to put it Thank is you. is part yes. of what we need yes. in order to accept change is to have the imagination that can move out of existing structures and mm -hmm. and you you talk about this idea that we're going somewhere good you say you know ultimately this whole direction can be trusted i i tend to think of that as the big e evolution right so yes. the collective experience yes. is going somewhere good yes. Um, but what I appreciate about the nuance of, of how you're phrasing it is that you're not glossing over personal loss or changes that mm. aren't good yeah. because those are there too. But you're also you're trying to ground us in a bigger reality that can see the relationship between evolution and resurrection. Is that kind of how That's wonderful. You're, Thank okay. you for seeing it. You know, one statistic that's really helped all of us was was that two years ago or three years ago when these statisticians said it can be proven there is less violence on the planet than ever before in history. 
wow, that felt good. <laughs> I'm just, really? Of course, it makes you think, what was history like? Right. Mm. Were we that savage? So there we have statistical evidence that human beings are growing up. Mm. Even though in the momentary segmented, you know, I'm living in Venezuela today. Mm. Uh, it yeah. doesn't appear to be true. Yeah, yeah. So there's a perspective, right? Because if we're thinking of deep time, maybe it can be Very, trusted. That's a good word, deep time. But yes. in our own lives, often it just feels like chaos, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. It usually feels like chaos. Yeah. I was, on a, I was on a hike this last weekend with a couple of friends, and uh, one of my friends was telling me that he went on this beautiful walk with his sister, and it was a beautiful day, and the sun was shining, and the birds were chirping, and, you know, and he describes his sister as a bit of a nature mystic. And they were having this experience and, you know, they got home and he said, oh, it's just a perfect day outside and it's so beautiful and it's so peaceful. And she said, well, that's an interesting perspective. If you were a bug trying to survive, you may have a different perspective Mm. on the day. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly... The changing of perspective. Yeah, what we face. I think it feels like chaos to us. I think we feel our personal losses so deeply and i don't think that should be glossed over right because that is there is grief there's there's grief there and loss and there's violence but i appreciate the way you frame that it that we're going somewhere good that there's a deeper bigger trusting place and of course i look at everything theologically forgive me but that's why we need jesus front and center to to dramatically present the two steps backward Mm. That uh, failure is part of the deal. Mm-hmm. And if God himself, if I can use Christian language, suffers failure and loss and death, then that must be the pattern of the whole. So I think so, that's why the crucified Jesus became our logo. It just has to be uh, experienced like a divine zinger. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. It isn't just butterflies and rainbows, but hanging in the middle of this is a dramatic statement about trust the two steps backward. Mm. Trust the human tragedy. Even that will be part of the movement forward toward resurrection. Mm. That's really good Mm. stuff. I always say authentic Christianity is utter realism. Mm. It's not idealism. And I think an awful lot of Christians, especially liberal progressive types, still confuse the gospel with idealism. Mm. Kumbaya. Right. <laughs> no, we're not, we don't have the luxury of kumbaya. Mm. Now we try to create that in first world Christianity, mm-hmm. but it isn't true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm thinking of um, Teilhard de Chardin, how he described the cross as the symbol of the sweat and toil and cost of evolution. Perfect. Wow. That's all yeah. I'm saying. He always says it better. Yeah, that's true. I don't know, that's Richard. So you've got some good well, ones. I'm yeah. trying. You just got that first. <laughs> Richard, one of the things I love about this chapter is you bring in Jesus' wedding banquet oh, metaphors. Good. and something that he uses a lot a in his lot, teachings. and it isn't noticed. Yeah, and you really help us kind of see the, the import of that. And how is Jesus talking about resur- the resurrection journey within 
the banquet stories? Well, if Jesus' primary metaphor and image for eternity is consistently, and it is, a wedding banquet uh, in which all are invited, and even in the text are included those several wedding banquet stories where we try to make it exclusionary. You don't have a wedding garment on. Huh? That, it's a perfect example of how the problem is included in the Bible, the resistance to the inclusive message, the nonviolent message. It's always there. And then there is one gospel, which I think we all love, Matthew 25, which isn't a banquet, but a courtroom scene. And I find it almost nefarious, if that word works, that we chose to emphasize the courtroom scene over the 10 metaphors of the banquet. Because a courtroom scene, as it is described in Matthew, is rather dualistic and clear. You know, the sheep and the goats, we like that. And of course, as you know, I, I love Matthew 25 because it emphasizes justice and care for the poor. And it's almost as if Jesus has to make that into a dualistic message because we'll do everything we can to avoid it, to deny, as we have. Mm -hmm. Just look at Christian history. Mm. Despite the threat that Matthew 25 ends with, and Matthew loves to end with a threat. I always say he had unhealthy parenting <laughs> patterns. His parent, his mother probably always threatened him. Because <laughs> he has to end everything with a dang threat. Uh, and that's all you remember. I remember last year when I was preaching on this, here at the big parish church. They're all following me, you know, whatever you do to the least of the brothers and sisters. And I almost was tempted, don't read the final line, because mm -hmm. that's all they're going to remember. And you could just see that this shocked look, and those of you who do not will be thrust into the lake of fire for all eternity. Oh, <laughs> that's all they remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It gives you a theological PTSD. Mm. When you threaten people with eternal fire, mm. well, it's simply the language in mythology of ultimacy, of, of importance. Um, so um, forgive me for taking so much time on this, but we clearly chose Matthew 25 and threat for all the good that that, I love Matthew 25, mm -hmm. in, instead of the many passages that are talking about a wedding feast, mm -hmm. including the very first story in John's Gospel, the wedding feast at Cana, which is clearly a message about abundance and excess, mm -hmm. uh, replacing the six jars, is it six or five, I can't remember, of waters of purification. Mm -hmm. He changes the waters of cleaning up into the wine of waking up. Wow. God, that's good stuff. Wow. You know, uh, but there it is again, the wedding banquet. And, of course, we developed a whole theology of marriage out of that. Well, that shows Jesus is for marriage. No, of course. <laughs> Which wasn't really the message. Yeah. Of course Jesus was for marriage. But um, anyway. And I'd love, even the invitation that you were saying right now, to view it 
for the generosity of mm-hmm. the banquet itself because I know like just focusing on the the miracle at the Cana, miracle you lose that whole that's right abundance that is the transaction yeah instead yeah. of the transformation you yeah. focus on the magical yeah. the magical thing yeah, yeah and you're not paying attention to the Look symbolism Jesus, of what he's doing water into wine. yeah hooray yeah. <laughs> for our Jesus our God is better than your God and that's not the message at all mm-hmm. right that's the that's the message the ego wants it to be to uh, elevate my tribe above your tribe. Mm. My God can change water into wine. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Invite me to your next party. (laughs) If that's God, of course. Well, I'm glad you're bringing up the ego because you you have this line um, speaking to to the wedding banquet metaphor. You say that the fragile ego always wants to set a price and entrance requirement of some sort the ungenerous mind does not like the wedding banquet. And I guess that's the first time that I've really been able to absorb. Is that is that why a universal wedding invite or universal resurrection, universal salvation is so threatening to us? I think it is. You see, payment and quid pro quo thinking gives you a sense of control. I can win. I know how to play the game. Do I say in the book, quoting my lovely Therese of Lisieux, how the only science uh, God does not know is mathematics? It's it's only found in one of her letters. If I didn't put it in the book, I should have. Uh, Yeah, it's in one of her letters. God knows all sciences, but the one he doesn't know is he knows nothing about math. (laughs) You get her point. The mathematical world is all fully controlled of adding, subtracting, paying, being paid equal to what you gave. Uh, The thought that God ignores mathematics, Mm. just for me, brings the message home. Mm. Um, But until you've experienced unconditionality, undeservedness, unmeritedness, you almost don't have the filaments, if that's a word, in your brain to take that in. There isn't any, there's no cells that have formed to access any notion of unearned love. And that's why when, when I'm sure you first experienced it from your partners or your children, it does make you tear up. It's just where did this come from? In my first set of tapes back in 73, I had just seen the movie that had won the best movie of the year, The Sound of Music. Mm. I was even in the gazebo in Austria where it was sung, you know. Remember that Julie Andrews says, nothing comes from nothing and nothing ever could. But somewhere in my childhood, I must have done something good or I could not have deserved you loving me this way Ah. it's a beautiful as she and christopher Plummer are looking into one another's eyes Mm. what did i do to deserve this and then he sings it back to her Mm. watch it again it'll make you tear up it's how did rogers and hammerstein (laughs) figure this out (laughs) this is why we can't dismiss you know popular culture movies drama novels because again and again, without all the theological overlay, they get the foundational message. Mm. 
Yes, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. But it seems to have happened. <laughs> Something came from nothing. Undeserved love. It's, yeah, there's really major resistance. Because I'm not in control now. I'm really not. You mean I didn't earn it? My good behavior didn't achieve this? It's unprocessable. Mm. So we move it back into some equation of quid pro quo, tit for tat. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's so lovely. and It is. And it's not mine. It's the gospel. Yeah. You know? I love in this chapter how, for me, it connected back to the first chapter, too, of that phrase of the Christ-soaked world. Hmm. When you say that neither Christ nor Jesus is outside of our natural reality in the first place. Yes, yes, yes. And what that connected yes. for me was Thank then, could, could I say, could we all say we are born out of a Christ-soaked world? Hmm. And that then we're a part of this embodied conversation with the divine. You're naming it, Paul. Uh, there's so many things I'm probably naively, but still hoping for from this book. And one will be that people will begin to see that authentic Christianity is based in the natural and even destroys the distinction between natural and supernatural. Carl Rahner, as you know, one of my heroes, he's the first frontispiece at the beginning of the book. He had a very fancy word for this. God, I remember my professor taking a whole morning to describe this to us. And we were, I just walked out of the room dazed. And Carl Rahner's phrase was the supernatural existential. <laughs> it took him a whole morning to describe that in existence, Grace is already planted. It, 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 it doesn't need to wait for behavioral mm. change. This is so good. I don't know what else would make the good news good, in, inherently good. If, you've got a, if it's contingent on me understanding it or on the perfection of my response, I'm going to just say it, it is not good news. It leaves you inherently unstable, fragile, insecure, and trying to create artificial criteria by which you can be worthy. I went to Mass on Sunday. I obeyed the Ten Commandments. I didn't have sex with my neighbor's wife. You know, okay, I hope you did all those things, but none of them prove that you've experienced unitive love. I, that... That line, and this may surprise you, is actually one of my favorite lines from your book. You say that neither Christ nor Jesus is outside of our natural reality oh, in the mm. first place. And I think the reason why yeah. I love it so much is because I think we've all had experiences of mm. the Christ or Jesus, that level of miraculous, that level of the veil parting and seeing uh God through the in a diaphanous quality through our material lives. I think of when my son Rowan was born, and I'm telling you, the room filled with light. And I'm sure many other women could women, describe yes. birth moments like that. But I'm even thinking of stories of resilience, of beauty in the midst of horrific violence, yes. in the middle of wars, yes. and the the things that you see. So 
that line reframes for us, gives us, um, gives us an opportunity to look at our own lives with the same kind of miraculous gaze that we tend yes. to look at Jesus or the Christ. Yeah, well said, and very well said. So the veil parts, like, and you say this in your book, it, it, it provides the language and the framework from which we can see, like the veil is always parting, mm-hmm. veil is always parting. So I'm curious. In fact, we create the veil. That's it, yeah. right. So <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. I was wondering if you, um, if you have any experiences of the veil parting that you would feel comfortable oh sharing with us. Well, it's funny, as you were talking, one did come to mind that I, I don't think I've ever talked about. I did two of my hermitages in Lent at the, the new Kamal Dali in Big Sur. I don't know if you've been there. Yes. It's yeah. a Kamal Dali's monastery. And because I was there for 40 days, I would have, uh, and I was much younger and in better shape, I could walk in these deep glens behind the, the monastery where it's just like, I mean, you think you're in, what's the movie that was filmed in New Zealand? Uh, Lord, Lord of the, of the Rings. Rings. Oh, yes, I thought I was in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it was just all kind of leaves and fallen redwood trees and little frogs and and no sound could be heard. But I said, why would I ever want to leave? This is it. It's heaven. It's just beautiful. And it probably no one ever comes down in this glen because it was pretty steep to get down in it. And then at the bottom, of course, there's a beautiful stream. Uh, but that made the whole retreat. All I went back was journalize about the deep experience of connection mm-hmm. I had through nature. I, I don't know that I was even, forgive me, I don't know that I was thinking of Jesus. <laughs> uh, it was Jesus was in the leaves, the frogs the redwood trees, even the fallen redwood trees, which I had to climb over. God, it was heavenly. Mm. Uh, And I thought, how many people ever come to a place like this? It was just beautiful. So, yeah, I have to say the veil parted. And I went back there any number of times and always would experience what I guess I'd call the residue of that original moment, uh, where it was never as strong, but still just as confirming and just as enlightening, just as solidifying of my selfhood and my goodness. Wow. And no religious language was necessary. Mm. Even though now I can understand what religious language is trying to say, but I gotta be honest, it often gets in the way. Because it becomes too pious, too churchy, too pretty, too circumscribed. Well, Jesus didn't appear in the glen. No, but Christ appeared in the glen. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I didn't say it that way then. Yeah. But I'd say it that way now. Because Jesus is circumscribed. Christ is uncircumscribed. Mm-hmm. When you can let go of that need to put boundaries around God or Jesus, we are getting toward where we're talking about. Yeah. Mm. I think stories like that is 
part of why I connected so much to that phrase, the Christ-soaked world, because it just... You like that from the yeah, beginning. Yeah, it just gets yeah. me you, giddy, you. I think, because it just elucidates yeah. experience in the world as yes. something that has yes. the holy participation. Already soaked yeah. before we came on the scene. Yeah. yeah. And soaked for 13.6 billion years with no human being there to say, oh, <laughs> isn't that wonderful? Who is this God so humble, so patient? You know, it was already giving glory to God before we brought consciousness to it. And I do believe that's our role, to bring consciousness and glory and praise to what has always been true. But it was always true before we started praising for it. Yeah. My son Rowan said to me the other day, and I don't know if this will be relevant or not, but... Um, he said, Mama, I love you so much. I love you the mostest. I love you so hard. <laughs> he goes, I love you so hard, but I love you the third. And I was like, okay, <laughs> the, third? the third. And I was like, interesting. I'm going to see where this is going. He goes, yeah, because I have to love God and Jesus first and second. Oh, and I said to him, exactly, oh, right? Dear. But then I said this phrase of, of the Christ-soaked world. I was like, well, actually, Rowan, this whole world is is." full of Christ. So if you can love me the mostest and you're loving God and you can love God the mostest and you're oh, loving me, you know, lovely. but it was really funny. I, I love oh. that phrase too, Paul. That's, I use it all the time now. That's, yeah. It's such a beautiful expression. You just, that exchange with your son. I mean, that's yes. a theological lesson that yes, is happening yes. out of yes. the day-to-day -day conversation. Yes. And yeah. out of this book. I yeah, mean, this is, that's right. this is why it's so, um, uh, helpful. Well, and also I want to say that it wasn't wrong your early Christian teaching to sure. him that he should love God and love Jesus. Right. And clearly that's planted in there. Yeah. So that's good. You've got to have an anchor by which to understand infinite love. Now that he's put you in the chain is all we need. That's all we need. <laughs> I love you the mostest, but mostest. I love you third. <laughs> It keeps you humble, Beautiful, right? beautiful. And to bring it back to Jesus and his particular resurrection moment, what do you see as shifting for Jesus and his followers after his resurrection? And what do we have to learn from that 2,000 years later in our own resurrection moments? How do we learn to trust our moments of resurrections when they shift for us, mm. similar to what happened with Jesus and those who were following? Yeah. Obviously, I can't prove this. And good people might well disagree with me. But I don't believe the human mind of Jesus fully comprehended that he was the personification of this universal mystery till after the resurrection. I believe he had to go through all the stages of life and death, passion, rejection, betrayal, uh, like we all do. That's why I call him the map in the book. So it's a growing awareness in Jesus, just as it normally will be a growing awareness in us. I've told you, or I don't know if I told you, but I said it in years past, how when I was a young priest at and those young boys were all baptized in the Spirit and all excited about Jesus and and uh, I was just sure they would all produce tremendous fruit. Uh, and then I, I saw after a while that just that knowing we're loved, you know, 
didn't bear a lot of fruit in a whole bunch because they had lived no life in between. To long for love, to need love, to need mercy, to need forgiveness. In other words, if you give the good news too glibly, too quickly, too easily, and just becomes a formula. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible told me so. I'm glad, but you gotta create capacity for that. And that's life. You've gotta hate yourself a few days. You've got to be rejected and say, what did I do wrong? Or whatever it might be. And so I'm just trying to show the parallels between our lives and Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think Jesus himself, it wasn't earning his Christhood, but it was readying himself to hold such a big truth. So again, I can't prove that. But I don't think, you know, when he asks, who do people say that I am? That's the giveaway, hmm. that he doesn't have perfect knowledge, it seems to me. Um, and he's really saying to the apostles, how am I coming across? What are the crowds saying? Hmm. Could it be true you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? But he doesn't say them, yes, sir, I sure am. He just lets Peter say it. Okay, maybe I am. I don't know. Isn't it the same way with us? Yeah. Yeah. Or even yeah. the way he was so anguished in the garden when they fell asleep. Mm. I mean, these are real human moments. A perfect example. Or yes. the loss of, of his friend when Lazarus dies. You know, there's real grief. But we don't like to look at Jesus like no, that. No, that's because to make him too human. That's right. We'd rather ignore the fact that he had a whole life before his ministry mm. began. We. We don't like to picture him as having the same kinds of Need. questions. He has no needs. Exactly. Yeah. And that he clear. I'm glad you used the example of the garden, because that he clearly needed these guys. Stay with me. Uh, this is hell. <laughs> so was Jesus a codependent? <laughs> was Jesus needy? Yeah. <laughs> he, because he was a human. Mm. Mm. And we haven't reflected enough on the humanity of Jesus. Yeah. Mm. You know what I'm going to say now as a Franciscan. Those who study the history of spirituality say, until Francis, there is no one who emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Mm. It's all the iconographic, if that's a word, divine Jesus, divine Jesus. And even art changes after Francis, mm. as we see in Giotto, where there's little plants and little birds. And this world, this human world that we experience, begins to become holy. Mm. But that it took us 1,200 years to dare to think of Jesus as fully human. You know what I realized, in fact, just recently, is really, I thought of Jesus half human and half divine. And you put them together and they make a whole. And I'd be willing to bet a lot of people, okay, yep. no, fully human yeah. and fully divine, the creed of the church says. See, without a non-dual mind, you cannot process that. Mm -hmm. You can't. You'll make him half human and half divine, but fully human. Mm -hmm. So that means his human mind I don't know how you access that with his divine mind, but his, I don't think his human mind knew. 
He grew, as Luke's gospel says, in wisdom, age, and grace, just like you do. That's why he's the map. Mm. He's a good map for faith and love. It kind of makes sense why we wouldn't want to look at that fullness of humanity, because then it gives us permission to also experience the fullness yes. and depth of our humanity. That's right. And that kind of freedom is frightening to, frightening to be able to risk and fail and get up again. I mean, this is exactly mm. what you're, you're pointing at in this mm. chapter. Yeah, that instead of constantly projecting onto Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. That's what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. Now we have to look yep. at ourselves you got it. You got and, it. Got and realize, it. Mm-hmm. okay, this is actually the path of my entire life. And mm-hmm. how can I begin to see myself this way? Ooh, that's uncomfortable. That's why we use the language of Ken Wilber a lot, descending religions and ascending. Mm-hmm. When it was all about pretending we were divine and jumping over our humanity, we created a lot of delusional Christianity. I don't know what other word to use. Mm-hmm. But once we know the descent has to precede the ascent, you have to go into your humanity before you can even desire or appreciate your divinity. I think that's the only trustworthy path. And again, that's the path Jesus took, coming into the world as a little baby. And you know, when I was a little Catholic boy, I believed when he was laying in the manger, he knew everything. (laughs) And he just, I'm going to pretend for 30 years. (laughs) I'm going to pretend that I can't talk. (laughs) Just going to make these, I'm going to pretend that I'm going to make these gurgling sounds. Even though I know all the languages of the world. (laughs) (laughs) You stupid people. (laughs) Oh, he just undid the message. Undid the message. Yeah. You know, my, my first inkling of that was, hearing a story or an interview with Wendell Berry where he was talking about his early times with Thomas Merton when he would visit Merton at the Hermitage. I guess I never knew they met. Yeah, there's some photos of... In uh, Kentucky, I should have assumed that. And uh, Wendell Berry said, Thomas Merton was the most human person I've ever met. Mm. And that right there seemed like a giveaway. Like, well, there's there's a depth to that word when when it's said in that... Yeah, phrasing, knowing yeah. what I, we all know about Thomas Merton as oh. the the great prophetic and mm-hmm. contemplative voice of the 20th century, mm-hmm. that that just unlocked the door of humanity for me in a way yeah. that I needed that example. And all his messiness too. Yeah, yeah. you know everything that we know. I mean, we love to just project no, perfection. <laughs> yeah, but that I, I that is liberating. That doesn't make him less of a saint for me mm-hmm. at all. More. It makes yeah, him more, more so. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know that's why he didn't become a Franciscan. Do you know this? Oh. He was at St. Bonaventure's in New York, and he went to Father Irenaeus, who was a holy man, and went to confession and confessed that he fathered an illegitimate child. And holy Father Irenaeus said, well, I'm afraid you can't become a Franciscan. <laughs> You're not worthy. To be. So we use this all the time. Uh, Thomas Merton was not worthy of us. (laughs) We kicked him out and he went to the Cistercians. What a mistake. Father Irenaeus living up to his namesake there. (laughs) That's right. So I want to read a quote from the book that's loaded with a lot of theological heft that I would love for you to unpack for us. I'm going to read it first here. Jesus was always objectively the universal Christ. But now his significance for humanity and for us was made ubiquitous, personal, and attractive for those willing to meet reality through him. 
Can you unpack that as an through an example in light of those who have some sort of experience with Jesus as universal Christ, but Christ still seems too big to understand? Yeah. Does that well, make sense I, I what I'm asking? I try to make the point five times in the book. You know, that we have, if we understand it well, such a holistic religion that we have to be spoken to at several levels to meet the whole person. And Jesus, for me, meets the personal, intimate, heart, relational level. Christ meets the universal, philosophical, scientific, global, cosmic level. And my judgment is, you get both of those, you've got a very good lens into your own reality, first of all, and maybe into the reality of the whole. If it's just the conceptual universal, it becomes theory, becomes theoretical. You've heard me say, I'm worried sometimes that some of our own contemplative people can never pray from their heart. Mm. Uh, And even admit they don't pray from their heart anymore. Uh, Then I tell them, if I were their spiritual director, I think you've gone too far down the Christ road and you've lost the Jesus. Mm. Now there's other people in a lot of pious Catholicism, uh, cozy evangelicalism, where it's so sentimental, it's so sweet. It's so individualistic, it's so personal. Jesus is my personal boyfriend. Uh, that it's just, you just want to say gag me with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> just stop it. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not a religion that's big enough to include all of humanity. Right. It, your little Jesus looks a lot like your Mississippi culture. Uh, and uh, you can't see that, but So I really do believe, I don't know if that was the import of your beautiful question, but thank you for letting me say it. Is is that, was that the? Yeah, you you nailed it because I think it was trying to, I was just trying to to name for folks where Christ is still big, too big of a concept to understand. Um, And you're you're naming that Jesus is the gateway and sometimes people can go too far down one road where they don't have the personal, Mm. but they have the cosmic and vice versa and that. Mm. There you go. And until the cosmic becomes God for you, now, here, it doesn't engage the soul or the heart or even the full mind. Um, Yeah. That's interesting, though, coming from the evangelical background where the personal was the only emphasis, right? this quote where you are, you're quoting Michael Dowd when he says, uh, he describes God as reality with a personality, which I love that too. It's so helpful. Um, but what that's helping me realize is that when it's so highly personal, our personalities overly influence how we view God. And I guess I never realized that before that without the cosmic, we're sort of living by the tyranny of a God made in our own image set of blinders, mm-hmm. our filter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a four just falls in love with a beautiful God. You know? <laughs> a God of perfect beauty and symmetry. <laughs> asymmetry. And, <laughs> right, slight asymmetry. <laughs> Monochromatic. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, my one type, we wanted a God who created order and was the judge and the law keeper and all of that. And, of course, my type became clergy. And so we saw ourselves as the policemen of the, of the church, of the world. Word police and doctrinal police and ritual police. And, and that's the church I was raised with. A priest was pretty much a church policeman to keep everything in order. And uh, to the ego trying to form itself into a structure, that, that's rather appealing in the early stages. Oh, okay, stay inside this boundary and I'll be a good boy and God will love me. But when you're still emphasizing that at 35 and 55, you're not growing up. Speaking of projecting our human personalities onto God, can you give us a brief overview of where the concept of hell came from? Wow. Well, I'm going to speak philosophically first of all. That I do believe we have to preserve the option of a human no, or we are not free. So there's some sense to that. If you're not free to say no, if we're all robots and just absolutely programmed 100% to love God and love our neighbor, then your choice to love your neighbor really doesn't mean that much because you were programmed to do it. So to preserve human freedom, we had to preserve the possibility of a sacred no. Well, I don't know if it's sacred anymore, but yeah, it was ultimate. So to reveal the ultimacy and the danger of that no, most religions, even Buddhism, have some notion of a place of death, eternal death, totally missing the mark. Uh, it descended into the language of punishment and torture especially after Dante in the West. But the seeds of it are uh, found a lot, especially in Matthew's Gospel. <clears throat> uh, although it's other places too, but it's all based on metaphors from the Old Testament, the sea of fire. You need metaphors that communicate ultimacy and urgency. And I bet you've descended to it in rare moments with your children. You better not ever do that again or I'm going to never let you eat any candy. <laughs> it, has to be, it has to be real strong. Mm -hmm. Our kids don't get it. But eventually you have to grow out of being a kid and notice that was just a metaphor. You know, the various words that were used, not just in the Old Testament, but in the whole Mediterranean world were Hades, Sheol, the Jews used Gehenna, the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Um, Hades is not the same as our Western notion of uh, Dante's hell. Hades is simply, and Sheol too, the place of the dead. If you read Greek mythology, the place of the shades. And they actually had the honesty to withhold judgment. 
It was more like our Catholic notion of limbo. Mm. Well, they're neither happy nor unhappy. They're, they're just sort of waiting. That, that was much more honest to leave a place uh, where we withhold judgment. But our judgmentalism finally won out. And we made it into a place of torture, eternal torture, and God being the torturer. I, I just can't say strong enough. And I'm not trying to be some iconoclast or liberal or that just undoes the whole good news. Because God is less loving suddenly than the worst person you've ever met in your life. Uh, this won't work. It won't work to, to have this always sitting in the background that Jesus told us to love our enemies. Jesus told us to forgive 70 times 7, but you know what? God doesn't. That will not work. And we've got to admit that was in our unconscious. We always have that little doubt. Well, I know he's supposed to be love, but it doesn't look like love as I've experienced it. My mommy loves me better than that. I mean, most of us would say that. Yeah. Yeah. Mommy forgave me, but God doesn't. God not only doesn't, but doesn't forever. Oh, it's just horrible. It's just horrible. Don't you tell this story? I think I've heard you tell what? us before about um, Teresa of Avila, what she says about hell. Oh, yeah. Well, and in fact, both the Teresas said that. Uh, Teresa of Lisieux, too. Uh, she had to keep on the good side of the Inquisition, which in Spain was at its height, of course. Uh, so she, you see this very often in her writings. She places her bet on the side of what the priests and cardinals want her to say. And so she says, oh, yes, I believe in hell. And then the sisters say, she said out of the corner of her mouth, it's just that nobody's there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but in a way, she was right to assert the possibility of an eternal no. I think we do have to say that. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the people in history have been ogres to the last moment of life. Now, we still have to say that it might be a place of eternal death, not a place of eternal torture. I can even go that far, that it, it is possible for some people to choose death. But I think that's what Teresa was saying. Uh, no one's in a place of eternal torture, but we have to leave the theoretical possibility that you could say no to love. Now, I hope I quote this in the book. I know I have in other places. The line that we find several times in the first centuries, I think from the desert fathers and mothers, is no one will be able to resist the allure of infinite love. Mm. Now, that's what the doctrine of purgatory moved out of. Do you see? I know we made it too literal and too silly, but... No one can resist the allure of infinite love. That there was wiggle room, even for these horrible ogres who tortured other human beings. We condemned El Chapo yesterday to life in prison. 
And that man has lived an evil life. But it, we, if God is infinite love, and God is going to show infinite love one day to El Chapo, maybe El Chapo will not be able to resist it. Why would we begrudge him that? Why would we want him to burn for all eternity? Wouldn't it rather be a statement about the graciousness, the, the magnificence, the munificence of God? But we want to see bad people suffer. I don't think God needs it. We need it. We want it. Yeah. yeah. And that, that brings to mind what we've talked about in previous conversations, uh, the scapegoat mechanism. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be more, can you speak to that about the, the connection between the scapegoat mechanism and hell? You kind of just open that door as far as, kind of almost like the wish for to, to, to see yeah. others suffer so that yes. we can feel good about yes. our own standing uh, and what we were seeing ourselves in the light of our own goodness. The Germans have a word for it, schadenfreude. They always have a word for everything. They put two words together. <laughs> and Freud is joy, and Schatten is the shadow side of things. To take delight in the shadow side of things. Mm. Brilliant concept. And you just described it in a certain way. That there is some devious part of the human person. We think it's the maintaining of order. This much evil in the great ledger book of eternity must deserve this much punishment. Now, if you were raised that way, in your mind, that really does make sense. That, that concept doesn't go away easily. So the scapegoat mechanism was when, uh, through the help of scholars like René Girard and rituals like Leviticus 16, it was revealed to us that uh, human beings preferred to create a symbolic thing they could righteously hate because they had to hate something. There had to be somewhere for that internal negativity to go. And as long as it's even symbolic, if you read the whole passage in Leviticus 16, it goes out of its way to show that the goat is chosen completely arbitrarily. Two goats are presented and choose one for no reason and make that the one on which you project your dark side. So it reveals that you're the problem. <laughs> it's, it's accidental what you choose. When you can see that, and of course, Rene Girard's genius is that he insists it's an unconscious mechanism. You really don't know what you're doing it. You really think, no, those Mexican people at the border are the problem. Just get rid of them and America will be happy again. Hmm? How do you unconvince people of what their ego needs to feel secure and superior? And remember, that's what the ego always wants, to feel, well, separate and superior and secure. So, yeah... I think one day Rene Girard will be a household name in, yeah. in Western Christianity. Because for many of us, that explanation alone pulled back the veil from understanding the sin of, to understand the sin of the world 
and why Jesus became the scapegoat, mm-hmm. to reveal the illusion, the deception, the lie of the scapegoat mechanism. Mm-hmm. We hate what we should love. It also seems like that's deeply connected to the capacity to live out what Jesus was modeling of loving um, loving our enemies. In other words, loving those who are maybe even oppressing or who have hurt us. You know, I think of situations in my own life where I've experienced, you know, trauma or violence. And I think, yeah, it's, it, you want to scapegoat that person for you doing too. that thing to you. There is nothing that in you that naturally would want to forgive no. them unless, unless, unless we had this deep um, immersion in this cosmic view of things mm-hmm. in which that person isn't actually separate from me. And am I not guilty of manipulation That's right. or That's right. of, of, of taking power or of lording over any being? Of course I am. Of course mm-hmm. I am. But that... It seems like that's um, this view of the universal Christ is actually what helps us begin to even live a little bit of what Jesus was able to live. Well said. I can't improve on that. Um, Yeah, it's... And I want to ask God one day, if I'm allowed to, (laughs) why did God allow us to live with such capacity for deception Mm. and even prefer deception seemingly is do we need self-validation that much uh, that we just need to project our darkness elsewhere it seems to be the case yeah but if god and god's infinite mercy knows that The one who knows all can forgive all. We know a part. And once we all know, we're complicit. This is why this Pauline notion of evil. We're all complicit in the evil of the world. Uh, We live in a country that is profiting upon the oppression of the rest of the world. Now, we're not supposed to say that. (laughs) You know, we're not supposed to know that. Anybody who knows history knows it's true. Uh, how many bases does America have? Is it 360 or something like that? All over the world. We're the empire of the world. And so you and I are sitting here in this luxury and feeling so Christian. <laughs> there is no human being who is not complicit and enjoying the fruits of injustice, deceit, <laughs> lust, greed, gluttony, all the capital sins. Pray, that if I'm supposed to, that I can say that more clearly. Once we stop giving people a pure pedestal on which to stand, which is, I think, especially what evangelical Christianity tried to do, you are above the black people. You are above the, the rapists and all the rest. No, their sin is my sin. Mm. And my sin is their sin. You see how we get back to the collective. Yeah. Again. One lump. Did we talk about one lump? Yes, last? We, did, yeah, we did. Yeah. Good, good, good. Hmm. I'm going to borrow yeah. your copy real quick because I, you know, I have this uh, 
When I read your work, Richard, I just imagine you saying all the things the way in your <laughs> cadence. My, my terrible, yes. Yeah. Well, no, I actually really lovely, love it. Yeah. So I figured I hope so. maybe you. you could do that for us right now and just read a little section of oh, your own really? book. Oh, yeah. really? From my own book? Um, it's this paragraph. Which right paragraph? Here, right there. All right. I will. What chapter is this from? Oh, Resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, I have told people... Uh, if you only read one chapter, read the one on resurrection. Mm. Mm. That'll, I hope, intrigue you to read what led up to that. Yeah. Okay, page 186. But now you have been told about the eternal Christ who never dies and who never dies in you. Resurrection is about the whole of creation. It is about history. It is about every human who has ever been conceived, sinned, suffered, and died. Every animal that has lived and died a tortured death, which is most of them. Every element that has changed from solid to liquid to ether over great expanses of time. It is about you and it is about me. It is about everything. The Christ journey is indeed another name for every thing. Oh, thank you for letting me read that. Sometimes my own words convert me. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I read that. I say, oh, God, that's good. (laughs) Forgive the arrogance. No, thank you, Richard, for reading that. And as a way to close out this conversation... If resurrection is about the whole of creation, and we have this abundance of examples around us, where have you seen resurrection in your life in this past Mm. week? You know, I I can honestly say that an honest notion of resurrection becomes clearer every year older I get. And I think that's the benefit of of having lived many years, you see, look, that past, that was forgiven, that was let go of, that doesn't matter anymore, that changed, I changed. People who really hurt me or betrayed me, when I really look into my heart and I have no reason to hurt them or to even let them know. This is a one characteristic. Mm. We have a great problem not letting you know that you hurt us. <laughs> uh, we have to say it. I can almost tell when a one is going to do it. Well, you did do that, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I even have that need, almost none now. And I know I, by willpower, I'm sure I still do it, but it does not dominate my psyche at all, even in my dreams. So yeah, but I know it was given to me. I fell into it. I guess there was some allowing on my part, but now the allowing has become an enjoying, where I really can enjoy my own soul, do you understand? Because it isn't so filled. I'm not saying there isn't plenty there yet, but isn't so filled with junk, with negativity, with memories 
of who hurt me and how they hurt me and how much they hurt me. And you just want to say, oh, God, I bet I hurt them. You know, you're just more aware of that. So, yeah, it's, it has to be experienced in your own soul. Or it's just a theory. It really is. And that is the joy of my later years now. That I, most days, can genuinely enjoy that. Oh, and it's not really an enjoying of the Richard self, except in so far as the Richard self is a part of the whole self, the God self. In that world, I don't have any offenses that I can't overlook or, or any hurts that I got to remind you of. Mm. It just feels like, what an utter waste of time. I don't want to bother with that. I don't need to bother with that. So I hope something in there makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. Sounds like a practice of resurrection. Yeah, practice of resurrection. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another name for everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to learn about these ideas in more depth, check out the Universal Christ Resource Collection at universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.